chapter 1. Two of the most important questions for each person on earth to answer are these. Who is Jesus Christ and why did he come to earth? In my opinion, one of the best books that was written in the 20th century and one of the best books ever written is a book by Dr. J.I. Packer that is titled Knowing God. It is a classic of the Christian faith. And if every believer would read that book and the Bible through once a year, they can have a solid grasp of Christian doctrine. In the book, Dr. Pactor, after talking about some of the very difficult doctrines of the Christian faith, says this, But in fact, the real difficulty, the supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us, does not lie here at all. It lies not in the Good Friday message of atonement, nor in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of incarnation. The really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God made man. That the second person of the Godhead became the second man, determining human destiny, the second representative head of the race, that he took humanity without loss of deity, so that Jesus of Nazareth was as truly and fully divine as he was human. The more that you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the Incarnation. I wonder if we grasp the significance of what Packer says in that paragraph. That there is nothing in fiction that is so fantastic as the truth of the Incarnation. I think we have a tendency to pass over this staggering truth that God became a man. I mean, the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy said, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And then refers directly to the, the incarnation. The Christmas story is not primarily about the birth of a baby who would grow up to become a great moral teacher and example, though Jesus did those things. But rather it is the profound story of the birth of the Savior. After explaining that Mary was with child by the Holy Spirit, the angel told Joseph, she will bear a son. And you will call his name Jesus. For it is he who will save his people from their sins. I said last week the Hebrew name Jesus or Joshua simply means Jehovah is salvation. And if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you do not know him at all. For Jesus came to save his people from their sins. So I want to examine this verse and look at 
Four questions. Who came? What was his purpose in coming? Whom did he purpose to save? And what did he actually do? The first question will answer for us the identity of Jesus. And the last three will tell us why he came to earth. The context shows that this was no ordinary birth. Mary was pregnant, and she had conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's, fan that's a fantastic truth in itself. And imagine the faith and the trust of Joseph to believe that. Uh, she had not ever been with a man. She had had no sexual relationship with a man. And this is, of course, the doctrine of the virgin birth. Skeptics reject it because it is miraculous. And because in a closed mechanistic universe that most people believe in today, because most are naturalists, miracles cannot happen. One of the... Uh, most popular uh, Bible scholars of the 20th century was a Scotsman by the name of William Barclay. And in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, he assures his readers, our church, the Church of Scotland, does not compel us to accept the virgin birth in the literal and physical sense. This is one of those doctrines on which the church says that we have full liberty to come to our own conclusion. He later calls the virgin birth a crude fact and argues that the point of the narrative is that the birth of Jesus, the Spirit of God was operative and as never before in this world. Frankly, I, I read things like that and think, what are you even talking about? What does that mean? I mean, the, the plain sense of the text would say that Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary while she was still a virgin. There, there's no ambiguity if you read it. And most people can read, they just don't want to believe it. Matthew was one of the twelve. He had direct access to Mary. Luke was a physician who had undoubtedly interviewed her. He says he carefully researched his gospel. Both of those men affirm the miraculous virgin birth of Jesus. Reject this as actual history by the testimony of two independent historians who were living at the time and whose writings have been accepted as factual by thousands of scholars for a couple of thousand years is basically ridiculous. The only reason for rejecting the miraculous in the Bible is because of a bias against all miracles, which is a bias against God himself, because it is God who is able to interpret the laws of his creation according to his purpose. God can do as he pleases. That's one of the perks of being God. He can do as he pleases. So it is reasonable to accept the virgin birth as being 
historically accurate account of his birth. It is also important to affirm the virgin birth doctrinally. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ is necessary to affirm his his deity. If he was born of a human father and mother through the natural biological process, then he is not God in human flesh. Under those circumstances, he might be a man upon whom God's spirit rested in an unusual sense, but he would still have been only a man. His existence would have begun at his conception. Therefore, he could not be the eternal God in human flesh. And yet Jesus claimed many times that he was sent into the world from heaven, assuming his prior existence. He said to the Jews in John chapter 8, Before Abraham was born, I am. They picked up stones to stone him. Why? Why would the Jews want to have stoned him for saying that? Because he was plainly asserting his eternal nature, his divine nature. Also, belief in the virgin birth is essential to affirm the sinless humanity of Jesus Christ. If he was born of natural parents, then he was born a sinner, like all human beings after the fall. And he would have needed a Savior for himself. If he had sin of his own, he could not die as a substitute for others. To be born as a man who fully shared our humanity, Jesus had to have a human parent. And through the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, in the virgin birth, Jesus was born human and yet completely sinless. He did not inherit the sin nature as all of us had. And so as a sinless man, Jesus could represent the human race as a sin bearer. And as God the Son, his sacrifice could be acceptable to the Father. The angel tells Joseph, that he is to name this miraculous child Jesus. Why? Why name him Jesus? Because he will save his people from their sins. Since for the Jews, a person's name had great significance, the name Jesus points us to the very essence of his being, namely that he is the Savior. He is the one who saves. He is the only one who can save. The title Christ means that he is the Jewish Messiah. He is the anointed one. So the answer to our question, who came, is that Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, is none other than the eternal God in human flesh, and that he came to earth primarily... As the Savior, he came to save. That was his purpose in coming. He will save his people from their sins. To understand that word, 
you have to understand the radical nature of the word save. You don't save someone who just needs a little help. Most of the people on earth today think that actually we save ourselves and God helps us out. You know, just like, you know, God helps those who help themselves. So that is the nature of salvation. We, we provide most everything and then God helps out. But you save someone who is unable to save himself. A person who is lost at sea and can't swim needs saving. A person who has stopped breathing needs saving. It means that prior to Jesus saving them, his people are hopelessly, helplessly lost in their sin. They're alienated from God. They're under his righteous judgment and unable to free themselves from that condition. A savior is the one who has power to rescue people who could not rescue themselves. Jesus has the God-given power to rescue his people from their sins. That's very important to affirm because there are many, many people in the evangelical world today who believe that Jesus' ability to save anyone is contingent upon that person exercising their free will. Free will is a doctrine that the world loves. I mean, movies have actually been made about it in Hollywood, about free will. You remember the, the movie, I can't remember the name of the movie, that Morgan Freeman, I think, was God. and the, the, the one thing you can't mess with, they say, is free will. You can't mess with free will. So God desperately wants to save people. He longs to save them. He's done everything he could to save them. And he, he would save them if he could. But he just can't because of their unwillingness to be saved. So the picture here is God is up in heaven kind of wringing his hands saying, oh, oh, I wish that these people would get saved. But I'm bound by their free will. I can't do anything about it. I had a discussion one time with a man who very strongly believed in that. He said, no, I, I believe that the only way a man can be saved is he must of his own volition, his own free will, come to Christ. God is a gentleman. He would never, ever, ever impose his will on someone who was not willing. I said, well, then you don't pray for sinners, do you? Why? Well, he said, of course I pray for them. I said, what are you praying for? I'm praying they'll be saved. I said, against their own free will? What kind of monster are you? Oh, he said, Brother Bob, you don't understand. I'm praying that God will make them want to be saved. I said, we're on the same page now. Now we're reading the same Bible. Ain't that wonderful? That's what I pray for. Listen, free will, as it is normally defined in this world, and in much of the church, doesn't exist. Man is, man's will is fallen. The Bible plainly says that. Go back to Romans chapter 3 and look at what he says. There's none righteous. There's none good. There's none that seeks after God. Where is man's vaunted free will when we know from the Bible that he is dead in his trespasses and sins? 
Now, there are aspects of free will that we don't question. I got up this morning, put on a gray suit, you know, because I wanted to, you know. So I'm, I'm free to do that. I'm free to eat what I choose, go where I want, as long as, you know, other factors are not involved. But man, in his condition, is not free to choose God. Because he doesn't want to choose God. He has no desire to choose God. There is nothing in fallen man that would cause him to choose God. This text, however, doesn't say he hopes that some will respond to his offer of salvation and be saved. He's going to give it his best shot and save people he can, but it all depends on their choosing. No. The text says he will save his people from their sins. There really isn't any human contingency factor in it at all. Salvation is from the Lord. I've told you numerous times over the past 34 years that when you come to Christ, you bring a sinner and he brings everything else. You bring a sinner. Vile, wretched, blind, naked, lost. And God brings everything else. In Isaiah chapter 14, verse 24, the Lord declares by oath, Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have planned, it will stand. In the context, that is a reference to the breaking of the power of the kingdom of Assyria. But a God who is able to accomplish his purpose and break the power of a mighty empire, can he not purpose and plan to save a people for himself from their sins? In Isaiah chapter 49, God declares, For I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all of my good pleasure. Again, in the context, that's a reference to his purpose of raising up Cyrus to accomplish his purpose for Israel. But again, if the Almighty can raise up and bring down pagan kings to accomplish his sovereign purpose, can he not purpose to save his people and actually save them from their sins? Matthew 1.21 is the fulfillment of of the promise of Psalm 130, verse 8. The psalmist is overwhelmed by his sins. He's in the depths, about to go under. And he cries out in desperation to God. And he recognizes that if God were to mark iniquities, no one could stand in his holy presence. But then he adds, But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Based on the hope of God's promises, he then encourages Israel to put their hope in the Lord. He says, For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Jesus is the promised Savior who does actually redeem his people from their sins. To suggest that God's sovereign purpose 
to save a people for His glory is conditioned upon the feeble, fallen will of man goes against the Scripture. In Ephesians 1, Paul sets forth the salvation that God has freely lavished upon us. And he makes it very plain that our salvation comes from God completely, unequivocally. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. You get it? God chooses a people before the foundation of the world. Christ dies for those people that the Father has chosen. The Spirit convicts those same ones of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. There is no ambiguity, there is no difference of opinion in the Trinity. There is perfect harmony. Paul further says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of His will. Whose will? His will. He made, known, he made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Him. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to His purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will. I'm simply saying what the Bible repeatedly affirms. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God purposes to save, that Jesus would save His people from their sins. There is no doubt about it. He will accomplish that purpose to the praise of the glory of His grace. And our response should simply be, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Thus, Jesus, the Christ, who is God in human flesh, came for the purpose of saving His people from their sins. So whom did He purpose to save? Clearly, to save His people from their sins. Who are His people? In the context, Matthew, of Matthew, some say that His people is a reference to the Jews. Psalm 138, verse 8 puts it, He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. But if it means the Jews, we must conclude that God has failed in His purpose for many millions of Jews have died, lived and died without ever believing that Jesus is the Christ, without ever believing in His atonement, without ever trusting Him for salvation. So we'd have to conclude that God failed in His purpose. He came to save all the Jews, couldn't save them. Some would say that this refers to the whole world, since John 4.42 says that Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. I've told you before, in our day and time, we have no conception of how scandalous it was for John to say, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The Jew would have screamed, what? No! God doesn't love the world. He loves the Jews. You Gentiles were just made so that there'd always be fuel for the fires of hell. 
I mean, the Jew divided the world up that way, Jew and Gentile. No distinction. And when John said, God so loved the world, he was saying that God loves all kinds of people. That there are all kinds of people that are coming into his church. There is a sense, of course, that he is the Savior of the whole world, not just Jews only. But if his purpose in coming was to save every person who ever lived, then we would have to conclude again he's failed in his purpose. Because every person who's ever lived has not come to know Christ. So, matter of fact, always been a minority of people. But if you think about it for a moment, it is inconceivable that a sovereign God could fail in his purpose. If he could fail in his eternal purpose, he is not sovereign. If he is not sovereign, he is not God. Some would say that his people refers to all who believe in him for eternal life. And I, I agree with that. I don't think it goes quite far enough. Because the Bible says that because of the fall, all men are in spiritual death and darkness. They're unwilling and unable to come to Christ in faith. So we must ask, why do people believe in Jesus? Why did you believe in Jesus? What enabled you to believe? Why did you believe when your neighbor did not believe? Scripture is clear that the only reason that anyone believes in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord is that God has chosen them and drawn them to himself. The Spirit of God has made them alive and brought them from spiritual death to spiritual life. He has opened their formerly blind eyes that they can see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Both saving faith and repentance are gifts that God gives to his elect. I believe that I am a Christian because God granted me the gift of salvation. God convicted me of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. He regenerated my dead spirit and made me alive. And I believed that Jesus Christ died for my sins. I believe that he was buried. I believe he rose the third day. The only reason I believe that is because God made me willing to believe that. So his people are those that God has purchased with his blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. They are his and he will save them from their sins. One other thing we could note about his people, they are sinners. Because Jesus said the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. These people are lost. They're alienated from God because of their sins. Jesus plainly said those who are well don't need a physician. But those who are sick, I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. If you don't see yourself as a sinner in need of a Savior, 
then Jesus means nothing to you. If you think you're basically a good person and you're going to get into heaven because you are basically a good person, because of your own goodness you're going to be accepted, uh, then you're not one of those he's talking about here. He's talking about those who see themselves as sinners, without hope, unless Christ intervenes. So we see that Jesus Christ, who is eternal God, took on human flesh to save his people from their sins. His people are those that the Father has given to the Son. He does not hope someday that he can accomplish this purpose because it's basically up to them to decide. Rather, he will accomplish his eternal purpose by saving them. So, what did he do? No question. Answer, he actually saved his people from their sins. In other words, Jesus' death on the cross is substitutionary and it is specific. He died in the place of those he came to save. He did not offer himself potentially for anyone who would later decide to believe in him. Rather, he actually purchased his people from the slave market of sin by interposing his blood so that they now do not have to pay for their sins. Those whom he purposed to save, he saves. All whom the Father has given to him will come to him, and he will raise them up on the last day. That's what he said, John chapter 6 and verse 37 and 39. Jesus gives eternal life as his gift to all whom the Father has given him. He saves them. He delivers them from the penalty of sin, eternal punishment in hell, from the wrath of God. He saves them from the power of sin. This is the doctrine of sanctification. We grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus our Lord. Progressively, we become more like him. One day, one day he will save us from the presence of sin. We will be glorified. We will be given a body like the body of Jesus, which is not subject to temptation or to sin, the glorified body of Christ. So if a person is not growing in holiness, if he's not striving against sin, then he needs to question whether or not he has been saved from his sins at all. This is a great truth. But don't do as many people have done in the history of the church and make mistakes regarding this truth or other truths like election or predestination. There are some who have come to believe that since God is a sovereign God who will save his people from their sins, then they do not need to offer the gospel to anyone. Because when God wants to save the heathen, he will do it himself. My great-grandfather was what is known as a hard-shell Baptist preacher. That is, he did not believe in the free offer of grace. He did not believe in extending a call for people to come to Christ, an external call. That's a grave and serious mistake. Listen, the same God who ordained the end, who will save his people from their sins, 
is the God who ordained the means as well. And he commands us to go into all the world, proclaiming the gospel to every creature, making, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, making them disciples, learners of Jesus. You cannot ignore one truth to the detriment of another. You must firmly have a grasp on both of those truths. God ordained the means as well as the end. I've, I've had people say to me, well, if, you know, if I believed in election and predestination and uh, this definite atonement the way you do, I, I don't know, know what there any incentive for me to tell anybody the gospel. How about because a sovereign God commanded it? What's wrong with that? What, I, to some of these people, I want to look at them and real sweetly smile and say, did you get up this morning and take a whole bottle of stupid pills? I mean, what, what is wrong with you? If God commands us to take the gospel to every creature, we must take the gospel every creature God didn't tell me to save anybody I can't save anybody I tell some people sometimes the first church that I pastored I baptized 36 people that first year 36 people were saved some of them are still saved because I think some of them were my converts I can't save anybody I have no power to save nor does anybody else save Jesus Christ what I can do is tell them how to be saved. And it is by means of spreading the gospel, of sharing the gospel, that God brings His elect into His kingdom. These people that Jesus has died to save. So make sure that you do not make the grave and critical mistake of ignoring that truth. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, check and see if you're one of the elect. It doesn't say that anywhere. Jesus Christ himself said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus said, the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. The question for you is not, am I one of the elect? The question for you to answer is, do I believe that I am a sinner? Do I want to be saved? If you want to be saved, come to Jesus. He will save. He rejects no one. He invites you to come. Flee to Him. Flee to Christ. For only Christ saves His people from their sins. We're going to stand.